0: Nutrition Reviews Conversations with the Authors, published by Oxford University Press. Welcome to Nutrition Reviews podcast on conversations with the author. This month, I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Amanda Gresh from the University of Sydney, who helped lead a scoping review on enablers and barriers of harnessing food waste to address food insecurity. This was written with her student, Matthew Lay, who was, a, was the first author on this paper, and Anna Ragan, a fellow faculty member at the University of Sydney. I found this paper to be very timely given our growing concern with the amount of food waste that occurs in the world in low, middle and high income countries. And even now, as I do this podcast, we have concerns about food insecurity because of climate change and the war in Ukraine. Although this review focused on Australia, multiple sectors of the food supply chain were considered, including food retail, households, and a strong focus on rescue food organizations. What I found most interesting is that they identified that the burden of food recovery is being led by private organizations. And there is a need to have better policies and programs to address food waste, of which much of it occurs at the consumer level. From their data, recommendations for recovering food that is wasted, included minimizing transportation costs for redistributing imperfect or surplus food from farmers and retailers to those experiencing food insecurity. Using the expertise of nutrition experts from food recovery organizations to improve the quality of food being given to people facing food insecurity and having food recovery programs that can be developed at no cost to the participants. These programs should also address food literacy, utilize mass media approaches, be age tailored, and messages framed from within personnel values. Additionally, governments need to take a greater responsibility for recovery and are key in having these efforts be successful to decrease food waste. I'm sure that our conversation will bring to light what drew these authors to writing this paper and how we'll stimulate future research on food waste through the complete food supply chain. Dr. Gresh, good morning in Australia and let's get started by having you tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Okay, so I'm a postdoctoral doctoral research fellow at the University of Sydney and I've been interested in nutrition sciences since I was a child. So I remember reading my mother's cookbooks as soon as I was able to read and I would spend hours like poring over the recipes and working out which ones I could cook with the ingredients in the pantry. Um, I was also really keenly interested in the healthiness of foods and understanding why some of the foods such as cakes were considered less healthy than others when ingredients were quite similar to other foods such as breads. So as an adult I was became concerned about the growing prevalence of nutritional deficiencies caused by the rising prevalence of obesity in developed countries and the persisting malnutrition in the developing world. So malnutrition in all its forms includes undernutrition, such as wasting, stunting, underweight from inadequate vitamins and minerals, as well as overweight, obesity and resulting diet-related non-communicable diseases. I was particularly attracted to learning the science behind optimal nutrition, the mechanisms of of nutrients and the best evidence-based ways to improve the nutritional status of global populations. So I remember hearing a story of a child that was consuming an ultra processed um, diet and it caused fecal impaction and constipation so severe um, that the child vomited and I learned about the nutrition of field and um, I learned about the field of nutrition and dietetics from here. So I wanted to give back to the community and work towards achieving healthier diets for. Um, the global populations and it's become increasingly increasingly apparent as I've um, conducted research that the escalating climate crisis is being driven by our diets and feeding the world's population will be an increasing challenge to meet the nutritional requirements of the population while maximizing rising carbon emissions, as well as other challenges to meeting the global food production uh, um, of the population, such as protecting biodiversity, addressing water scarcity, nitrogen and phosphorus pollution, methane and carbon emissions, and threats to the world's geopolitical stability.
0: So, you, you came into this from a nutritional sciences perspective. Um, why did you write this paper about food waste, which is, seems to be more of a social perspective or um, and its relationship to nutrition?
1: So I am trained in nutrition and dietetics, um, which includes public health nutrition, but as my PhD focus was uh, nutrition epidemiology. And one of the aspects I like about nutrition, epidemiology, and public health is being able to use the evidence base to inform policy and to advocate for healthier diets for uh, the population.
0: The the idea of food waste as it relates to food insecurity, I think is very complex. People that uh, have food in their house, how do they preserve it? How do they keep it safe? what do, how much do they throw away? Which, as you showed in your paper, is quite a bit. Um, and it's unknown. I mean, they don't recognize that they're throwing away that much food sometimes. People don't understand that. And then the back cost it has on their income or their expenditures. Can you provide this? I gave a little bit of information about
1: your results.
0: Can you summarize some of the findings you thought were most interesting and uh, anything that surprised you?
1: So we looked at four different sectors, the retail sector, the food waste sector, households, and the food system in the whole. So in the food retail sector, they found that uh, prioritizing the availability and affordability of healthy and nutritious food was the primary focus of sort of major retailers. So the major retailers um, wanted to make their home brand products cheaper and offer better merchandising and lower products to make food more affordable. And that was like quite, that reoccurred as an enabler. Um, But there was also a lot of a new emphasis in the literature that's only just sort of come out in the last 10 years about redirecting imperfect or surplus food um, and connecting food retailers with food rescue organisations and providing alternate markets for the sale of lower cost foods. However, there are barriers to doing this and um, there's inconsistent food quality, food quantity, funding resources, and a lack of support from food uh, retailers due to conflicts of interests in facilitating this from occurring. So while there is some evidence that food retailers want to change make changes um, it sort of is a conflict of interest for them to do so because they're giving away their products for free and then there's also costs associated with um, doing this so it can actually be more expensive to repurpose food than it can be to just throw it out But I guess unsurprisingly, the main emphasis was in the literature wasn't really from the retail perspective, it was from the food rescue organisations. And we identified um, 91 enablers and 69 barriers to using food rescue organisations in this way. So food rescue organisations to succeed, need to form and maintain partnerships to external organisations Um, that donate resources, most notably um, food finances, the facilities and volunteers. However, there's an inconsistent nature and quality of the donated foods, and there's also insufficient funding for them to address all the needs of food insecure people. Yeah, so implementing nutrition policies and standards within the food rescue organisations is also needed. To overcome the poor food quality that's sort of being donated. And the food rescue organisations also have um, challenges with the transportation costs and reaching people who actually need the food uh, to be donated to them. So, one of the barriers to food rescue organisations is that they are disempowering to the participants and they can have harsh eligibility criteria. There can be shame and stigma associated with utilising the food rescue. And there's also um, varying degrees of palatability, timing and choice of the meals provided. Um, So to address the stigma and shame, community approaches that were needed to be non-limiting to the target audience and um, incorporate social interaction and allow more freedom of choice. So an example of this is a school breakfast program. Um, There's new programs such as social cafes and social supermarkets, where people are able to go to uh, an outlet and actually purchase food um, available to them in the community at their own discretion. There's also, uh, food rescue organisations are also heavily involved in addressing the poor literacy and budgeting skills that many people have to overcome food wastage in the household. So they have, um, so most of these programs are offered free, and voluntary to the participants. And this helps overcome that barrier that um, of poor food literacy and and, um, poor budgeting skills. Food rescue organisations have to run um, advertising and fundraising campaigns as well in society to make sure that they're actually meeting the requirements and reaching the audience of the charity that they need to reach. So finally, we looked at the barriers and enablers of how- in the household sector. So the primary theme within the barriers for the households is that there are existing norms and practices that are resistant to utilising food waste. So to overcome this, optimising the health and food literacy programs and, ca- um, and campaigns within households is necessary and strategies to improve improve consumer awareness campaigns, such as increasing awareness through mass media literacy programs. Strategies that are tailor-made to different age groups are required, and also um, that are tailored to different levels of knowledge, as well as um, uh, the need for provision of materials, um, educational materials to address household food waste. one of the barriers to one of the barriers to actually having reduced food waste within the household, which contributes apparently $20 billion in Australia, is to improve the shelf life of foods and avoid over purchasing and overconsumption of foods. There's a need to address the recyclability of food packaging and to reduce household waste, um, whereas Purchasing foods in large glass or hard containers, and the presence of young children in the family, all contributed um, to excess waste.
0: I'm wondering now that you've done this study, how has it affected your life? And you know, what do you? How has it changed your behaviors, both at the retail store and at the household?
1: Well, I. Um... I feel like in there is actually a lot of need for um, supermarkets to sort of partner with the idea of reducing food waste. And there's still a lot of, um, it's very hard in a small household. Um, so it's just myself and my husband. And we find that uh, we have food wastage because the packages are large. However, I'm becoming a lot less strict about what I actually waste. And um, for example, sweet potato can be, you can cut the mold off hard food and reuse it. Um, I have started making um, stir fries for lunches that I call compost stir fries. And I use all of the bits and pieces left in the fridge, leftover from the main meals and just stir fry them and add. Um, I always have some frozen veg, uh, some frozen beans in the um, in the freezer that I can just mix in for a bit of protein and some rice. And um, I find that that's actually the best way to um, reduce food waste for ourselves. No. It's just um, careful planning and then making sure all those scraps get used up
0: I think you mentioned something really <laughs> important using frozen food you know if you have yes. access to a freezer is an important way to reduce waste and often those uh, fruits and vegetables that are frozen are less costly too for some people um, when you mm-hmm. when you buy it that way you can pull out the amount that you want at one time I I, I think the the number of enablers and barriers that you Identify can easily be incorporated into um, community-based interventions. And so communities can, um, people in the community can understand better ways to uh, recover their food even at the household level. And, you know, nudge um, those retailers and those wholesalers, the producers of food to package things in a little di- bit different way that then can reduce um, food wastage. Um, I'm wondering um, what do you think is the impact of your study for future guidelines and what do you plan to do in the future in this area of research?
1: Well, um, for future guidelines, I think, um, as you said, like addressing household food waste is actually um, key. Yeah, I think it is a strong partnership with um, organizations and understanding like the dynamics of like this typical household size could really help improve future guidelines. But also um, there are some excellent initiatives across uh, countries as well that haven't really been utilized yet, such as um, encouraging all wasted food Uh, In France, supermarkets, French supermarkets, all wasted food must be donated. But providing literacy programs, probably starting right in the school, would be um, one way I could see that we could change um, people's behaviour in the future. So, yeah, better, better education and better access to education programs is really important.
0: That, that's really to, good. I, I yeah. do think that education is very important. In the U.S., um, we have sort of almost eliminated uh, home economic courses in schools, where people don't really learn at a young age about you know uh, food preparation, uh, cooking, uh, home finances. All those basic life skills um, need to be taught early. And we don't. I don't know where people get them otherwise. Um, uh, can you tell us what you're
1: planning to do next um, in your research? So I'm currently working on several projects um, across different fields. And these include so food sustainability audits and benchmarking the sustainability, healthiness, and equity of the food environment, as well as um, deriving the best diets within that the most sustainable and healthy diets within planetary boundaries some exciting research just came out of our lab that showed that local food is actually also very important for climate change and sustainability i'm thinking bigger picture in terms of sustainability and how we can and formulating the evidence that underpins dietary guidelines so that that can then be implemented in society
0: well Dr. Gresh, I really appreciate the work that you're doing. I think this is very timely. It's important for not just local uh, food security, but you know, globally also, uh, as far as we can better utilize the food that we have on this planet. Um, I appreciate the time you've taken to be with me today. And I look forward to reading more about the research that you do.
1: Great. Thanks so much for um, chatting. It's been really great. <laughs>
0: Next month, I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Nancy Moran from the USDA ARS Children's Nutrition Research Center. And she's in the Department of Pediatrics at the Baylor College of Medicine, who helped lead a systematic review on carotenoid concentrations found in human milk and infant blood that was conducted by Yusuf Zaidi and Rachel Stroh, who are also at Baylor College of Medicine. What I found interesting and important about the systematic review conducted by these investigators is they took into account study location in their summary of data from 22 countries for infants' blood and 31 countries for women's milk, and these data are nicely presented in comprehensive tables. The graphic presentation clearly showed that beta carotene, luteins, and lycopenes tended to be more abundant than other carotenoids. What I found most important was their analysis that reported carotenoid concentrations in milk generally decreased across lactation stages and increased in blood with infant age. I believe that this has important implications on how we interpret correlations in breastfeeding studies that also measure a child's carotenoid and vitamin A status and why it is also important to conduct longitudinal studies. I'm sure that our conversation will bring light to what drew these authors to writing this paper and how it will stimulate future research on breastfeeding's short-term effect on nutritional status, but also potentially on long-term health conditions such as eye health. I welcome you to join us in the next podcast for Nutrition Review's Conversations with the Authors. The Nutrition Reviews podcast was produced and edited by Eric Healy at the Western Region Public Health Training Center studio at the University of Arizona, Mel and Enid Zuckerman College of Public Health. Original music was created by Eli Ruiz. Funding for the podcast was provided by the International Life Sciences Institute. To get more updated information on nutrition, go to the journal's website at academic.oup.com nutrition reviews and subscribe to the podcast to be notified when the next episode is available. I'm Douglas Terran. Thank you for spending some time with us.